culture to politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, where according to the constitution of this great nation, we are going to be experiencing a very substantive, very significant election coming up in just a couple of weeks. It is an election that uh, will determine who controls the House and, above all, who controls the Senate. The reason I say above all is because any single Senate race could determine whether it's a Republican majority where there is a Senate led by Mitch McConnell or if it's a Democratic majority, a Senate led by uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, we're going to be speaking to one of the candidates, and there really are only oh, maybe a half dozen of them all across the country, who may determine who controls the U.S. Senate coming up in uh, November. Uh, Tiffany Smiley, who is the very likely Republican who will clear the primary to challenge uh, the incumbent senator, six-term incumbent senator Patty Murray in the state of Washington, uh, Tiffany Smiley, who is running a competitive race to everyone's surprise, is going to be joining us uh, for the second time on this show to talk about what is at stake in this Senate race in the state of Washington and in the struggle for control of the Senate all across the country. Uh, we will also be speaking to Alan Dershowitz this hour. Alan is uh, somebody who needs no introduction. He's maybe the most famous lawyer in the United States at the moment. Uh, and for many years, as a matter of fact, a professor at Harvard Law School for years and years and years. His 50th book has just come out, and it is called The Price of Principle. And that doesn't mean principle like the guy who runs a school or the woman who runs a school. It's principle P-L-E, and that means uh, ideals, what you stand on, what you believe in, and why should there be a price for your beliefs and why is there more of a price than ever in a highly partisan polarized America? Uh, Professor Dershowitz will be talking about that and talking to some extent from his own experience. We're also going to be talking about one of the American problems that gets very little attention. It's a, a problem of a baby bust that we have not been producing enough young people. We have a related problem which is called the labor shortage, with more and more people in a great resignation, as it's been called, leaving the workforce. Peggy Noonan has written about that with a good deal of alarm. It's not just that you can't get enough people to serve in the United States Armed Forces, and we can't. Uh, all the armed forces, including the Marine Corps, which used to have a superfluity of people who wanted to be Marines, the few and the proud, well, now it's even fewer, still proud, but a lot of people who want to stand away from service in our armed services. So what is the deal? Why is it that Americans are turning away, not only from the armed services, but away from work in general? And uh, even with salaries increasing, and yes, that's partially a reflection of inflation, that more and more people are deciding to stay home and not necessarily to work from home, just to stay home, to drop out of the workforce. We will get to that as well on a busy day on the Michael Medved Show. But uh, first off, there was a uh, rally 
in uh, uh, the that just occurred. We had uh, dueling rallies between uh, Mike Pence and uh, President uh, uh, Trump. That's his name. Uh, President Trump in Arizona, where they are supporting opposing candidates for governor. Mike Pence was at a rally for Karen Taylor Robson, who is uh, a, on the uh, Board of Regents for the University of Arizona. She is a longtime uh, development lawyer and businesswoman and somebody who is uh, very connected, endorsed by uh, uh, Steve Ducey, who is the uh, outgoing uh, governor, and, uh, and Doug Ducey, pardon me. And uh, she is some it, been, been described, and she of course rejects this as the establishment candidate, whereas the Trump candidate is a former newscaster uh, named Kerry Lake. And here is what Mike Pence said at the rally for Karen Taylor Robson. Uh, listen, here are the Biden Harris administration. We've seen the radical left in the saddle in Washington D.C. They've unleashed a tidal wave of left-wing policies that have weakened America at home and abroad, created great hardship for American families. I mean, frankly, Democrats have moved so fast, sometimes I feel like the left hand doesn't know what the far left hand is doing. <laughs> I mean, think about it, though. I don't have to tell Arizona, right now we have the worst border crisis in the history of this country. Inflation's at a 40-year high. Gasoline prices are up 75%. New mothers are still struggling to get formula for their babies. Okay, he goes on. It was uh, remarkable only in that it uh, concentrated very much on Republican versus Democrat, not on Pence uh, versus Trump. Uh, Trump has a, um, a big meeting uh, today in Washington, D.C., where uh, he is speaking for the America First Institute, which is obviously a, a new operation on foreign policy uh, based upon President Trump. And uh, he that speech, because it is in Washington, D.C., as they say on cable news, it's right in the shadow of the Capitol building that uh, Trump is being blamed for attacking. And uh, we will see what it is that President Trump has to say and uh, whether that is directly relevant to any of this. I'll tell you what is uh, fascinating to me is there's a piece by Paul Krugman that raises a series of questions that I know that many of you will be interested in. And part of what he looks at is why it is that um, basically he defends the idea that people are far more focused on the attack of January 6th on the Capitol building than on the nationwide riots that occurred that were associated with Black Lives Matter and in reaction to the death of George Floyd in May of 2020. Now, obviously, what was a, uh, a more devastating impact on the country in terms of destruction, in terms of violence, in terms of just scope 
it, it was the fact that there were some 200, I believe is the number that they give, 200 demonstrations that turned violent, that demanded police action, that involved destruction of property. Uh, there were demonstrations across the country that, uh, that, actually, that actually scarred the country in May of uh, 2020. And it wasn't one attack on the Capitol building. So why is it that there is so much more American focus on trying to orient and to establish the, um, the differences uh, that occurred and the responsibility for the attack on the Capitol building on January 6th? Why does that matter more to most Americans, certainly to news media and to coverage and to government investigators, than anything about those BLM riots? And uh, what's fascinating here, of course, is that there are many arguments on both sides. One of the things that Paul Krugman admits and acknowledges in his column, and he's a columnist very much for the left, is that the cost, the damage from the BLM riots was between one and two billion dollars. It's a lot of money. Okay, you can say, well, a big country. But we'll get to this question and more, and Alan Dershowitz coming up, 1-800-955-1776. show uh, we've mentioned that there were dueling speeches out in Arizona right before the weekend going into the weekend by uh, Mike Pence and uh, Donald Trump campaign each one campaigning for his respective uh, candidate for governor of Arizona which is going to be a very uh, important primary coming up for the Republican Party as well as a senatorial primary coming up in Arizona Today, uh, President Trump is speaking to the America First Policy Institute. They're convening a summit. Uh, and President Trump, since uh, this is an institute based entirely on his approach to foreign policy, is uh, going to be the featured speaker. Mike Pence is speaking to another uh, fine conservative group that I have spoken for in the past Oh, more than a dozen times. Uh, in fact, I think probably more than 20 times. But uh, Young America's Foundation in Washington, D.C., which for years has worked to bring conservative speakers and conservative voices to American universities, uh, some of which are not always hospitable to those voices. That's one of those things that uh, Professor Dershowitz will talk about when he joins us in a moment. Uh, this was uh, Mike Pence, I haven't heard this, just moments ago, speaking to the Young America's Foundation in D.C., the former vice president. proud of the record of the Trump-Pence administration. I mean, for four years, we advanced the policies that I just described without apology. 
to promote a, a growing economy, to secure our border. We appointed more than 300 conservatives to our federal courts at every level, including three Supreme Court justices. We rebuild our military, all of what I described. And I'll always be grateful for the opportunity to serve as vice president. So I don't know that our movement is that divided. I don't know that the president and I differ on issues. But we may differ on focus. I truly do believe that elections are about the future. And that it's absolutely essential at a time when so many Americans are hurting, so many families are struggling, that we don't give way to the temptation to look back. But I think the time has come for us to offer a bold, positive agenda to bring America back. And I'll continue to carry that message all across this nation. Okay, that's uh, Mike Pence. Obviously, um, a, uh, a, a tough road for him to walk in the middle. And it's in the middle because he wants to emphasize that he's proud of serving in the Trump-Pence administration. And yet the question then becomes, why wouldn't you support Trump if he becomes a candidate, as he's widely expected to do? And obviously the biggest difference uh, they had, and it's one of those things that Mike Pence is going to have to talk about if he's going to have any campaign at all, is this question of uh, was the election stolen because uh, that's what he meant when he said we have to look forward we we shouldn't be looking back and he talked about how difficult americans are finding everything the uh, the idea of the stolen election far more than any concerns about even january 6th than president trump's responsibility for january 6th if you don't believe that the election was stolen, then you immediately understand why it is that uh, so many of us who discount that proposition, I think the election was close in some states. It was not close or sufficiently close in a sufficient number of states to create any doubt who won those states. I mean, when you're talking about uh, margins of 527 votes. That was the margin by which George W. Bush won Florida. 527 votes in a big state. And then you compare that to the closest of all the close Trump states, uh, which was Wisconsin, and Georgia was similarly close. It was about 11,000 votes in each of those states. That's, that's a gigantic difference because uh, both Georgia and Wisconsin are, are vastly less populous than Florida. And the idea that uh, President Trump and so many of his enthusiastic followers are not going to stop talking about the stolen election. And the question that I would ask, and one of those things that uh, uh, I, would, I would ask President Trump if I had the opportunity, would be, okay, uh, why is it important to try to persuade people that the election was stolen, that Biden was not a legitimate president. And there's a piece in the New York Times magazine uh, that, that talks about how the origins of the whole Stop the Steal movement, it really started 
well before the votes were even cast. In fact, it uh, started before the votes were even cast in President Trump's first election, the one that he won in 2016. He warned on the stump and at debates with Hillary Clinton that he believed that there was um, an effort to rig the election, that the election was going to be stolen. And then after he won the election and Hillary Clinton conceded the morning after the uh, votes came in, she conceded on that Wednesday. Even after that, he uh, set up a commission headed by Mike Pence and Chris Kobach, who's a former Secretary of State of the state of Kansas, to investigate what President Trump believed were three million unauthorized votes. In other words, it wasn't enough that he had won the Electoral College and he had been elected president. He also claimed that he, by rightfully, won the popular vote. Okay, and then the commission met for 18 months. They found nothing, no evidence of massive fraud, as had been uh, the allegations had suggested. And this even went back to 2012, when President Trump, who was not then president, but he was interested in running for presidency, made several appearances in New Hampshire, etc., before he endorsed Mitt Romney. But... Uh, President Trump was campaigning saying the Obama presidency was illegitimate because Obama was born in Kenya. Now, there is not a scrap of evidence. There never has been a scrap of evidence, I mean, of the slightest kind, of any kind, to indicate that President Obama was born anywhere other than Honolulu, Hawaii, where both Honolulu newspapers announced his birth when uh, when he was born in August of 1961, for goodness sake. But the idea that he was not eligible to be president of the United States, especially given the fact that we know his mother was born in Wichita, Kansas, was a U.S. citizen, that's enough to qualify you for the presidency, for goodness sake, as a natural-born citizen. And he was born in Hawaii. So sometimes it's a question of principle. What is the price of principle? We'll talk about that with the author of the new book, Alan Dershowitz, coming up on The Medved Show. Medved show, I mentioned yesterday that uh, one of the many quotes by Winston Churchill that it's worth remembering and savoring is he wrote uh, when he was a reporter in the during the Boer War in South Africa and uh, was exposed as a reporter covering the news to all kinds of hostile enemy fire. And he said, there's nothing quite so exhilarating in life as to have been fired upon without lethal effect. And, uh, okay, somebody who's been fired on a lot in a long life uh, without lethal effect because he's still flourishing. He's just published his 50th book. He's looking forward to his 84th birthday, which is remarkable and uh, exhilarating to even hear about is a friend of this show, uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz, uh, Professor Emeritus at Harvard Law School, 
where he was uh, where he was the youngest uh, full professor ever, I believe, in the history of Harvard Law School. His new book, and we just got disconnected for a moment, so we will be connected in a moment. His new book, his 50th book, is called The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. And uh, in, in the book, among many other things, uh, the... Uh, Professor Dershowitz not only talks about the importance of principle, but he talks about the importance of the principles that are most significant to him and how he has uh, paid some price for uh, actually affirming those principles. Alan, are you there? I am. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it's a pleasure and congratulations on the 50th book I was just talking about. Uh, your endurance and uh, the fact that people have tried to silence you for, for many, many years and for many, many different reasons, they haven't been very successful. Uh, why not? Well, they have. They have been successful. For example, where I live on Martha's Vineyard for the summer, I've talked at the library here every year to pack crowds. But since I defended President Trump, They've canceled me. The Hebrew Center has canceled me. The the Temple Emanuel in New York has canceled me. The 92nd Street Y has canceled me. Um, and it goes on and on and on. Several newspapers have canceled me. So, yeah, I'm going to keep writing books because you can't, you can't cancel books. Books endure forever. That's why I wrote The Price of Principle. But, you know, my voice has been muted to some degree um, because of cancel culture. And uh, you have uh, demonstrations of earlier forms of cancellation. And this is gets to a fundamental question that I think your book raises. It's listed uh, up at our website at the michaelmedved.com website, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences uh, by Alan Dershowitz. This goes back to uh, your best-selling book, I think, of all time, which was Chutzpah, which was right. uh, basically, that was a number one bestseller, and it was urging uh, Jewish people to be more affirmative, more proud, uh, less apologetic. Uh, and did that, uh, that, that book also led to some cancellations and to some blowback for you. You have a whole chapter about uh, being uh, canceled by Jewish institutions. My life has been a life of cancellation. It's nothing new to me. O.J. Simpson got me canceled in some quarters. The, you know, Klaus von Bülow case. You know, if John Adams were living today, he'd be canceled because he represented the people who were accused of the Boston Massacre. Abraham Lincoln would be canceled. Daniel Webster. You know, today we can't have conversations. The Lincoln-Douglas debates could not be held today. People would say, on Lincoln's side, we don't want to hear Douglas, and on Douglas's side, we don't want to hear Lincoln. You cannot have a debate today. There are no debates on national television anymore. You want to watch one side, you see Fox. You want to watch the other side, you see CNN. But there's very rarely an occasion for people with reasonable points of view, the way I used to fight with Bill Buckley. We were on television all the time. Um, arguing very different points of view, conservative versus liberal, but people would listen and, and maybe even once in a while change their mind. That has become inconceivable today. 
Well, they used to have a long-running um, show, I, I think it was on CNN, Crossfire, which was right. uh, also based on Bill Buckley's firing line, which was magnificent on PBS. Yeah, I was and he on had, that a lot. I was on that a lot, yeah. I, I I can imagine, and and again, he uh, B Buckley argued. There's famous interchange between Buckley and Gore Vidal, uh, where uh, yes, where uh, uh, Gore Vidal accused Buckley of being a crypto Nazi, and right. um, and, Gore, and and Buckley accused Gore Vidal of being an anti-Semite. Right, and right. Uh, yeah, you know, there were elements of truth. One in, of them in was both right. Those, but <laughs> no, but you know, name calling. Obviously, if you go back to Jefferson Burr, um, name-calling is part of the, uh, unfortunately, part of the American dialogue. But today, it's become a substitute for substance. It becomes a substitute for real debate. And I, I, I crave the day, the time, when we could see the Lincoln-Douglas debates. The other day, I went uh, to an auction, and I actually bought an original copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which... I have, and I read them because they're so good, and they're so intelligent and thoughtful, and so well done. But we don't have those anymore. And by the way, well done by the press, because these were not uh, statements that were given out by the candidates in advance. It was people transcribing, uh, right. and, and the opening statement uh, for the Lincoln-Douglas debates was 45 minutes, and then there was another full-hour statement for the middle speaker. But in any event, yeah. it's a long time ago. So in terms of why it's gotten worse, do you believe that it's because of the partisanship that has been built into the competing cable networks, or is there so. another I reason? I think so. I think the two words that I would use to describe the current phenomenon would be Internet and Trump. Now, why do I say Trump? Because whether you support Trump or you don't support him, he pushed people toward extremes. Um, people just can't be rational about Trump. Uh, on Martha's Vineyard, Trump is regarded slightly worse than Hitler, slightly worse, only slightly worse. Um, in some parts of the country, he's Jesus and Mohammed and Moses rolled up into one. And uh, I think he created or helped or contributed to um, a division. Um, you know, I like to say I'm a big Red Sox fan, uh, even today where they're losing, losing, losing. But when the Yankees would get on the field, I would cheer for Jeter, and I would wait for Mariano Rivera to pitch at the end of the game. I appreciated talent on the other side. But today, you just choose sides. And, um, you know, nobody wants to hear my point of view on Martha's Vineyard. Um, and probably in some parts of the country, nobody would want to hear points of view on the other side. Um, but you, you say in your book, you say in your yeah. book, and I, I want to get to this when we uh, come back from the break, uh, that you have recently been canceled by some Trump-friendly uh, right. precincts, right. and, and no you're going friend. to explain to us why, what you did after defending Trump in his impeachment crises. Uh, after defending Trump, you're now suspect by uh, too many Trump supporters. Why? We will get to that with Alan Dershowitz's new book, which you can uh, understand is not only an argument starter, but maybe even an argument settler in one sense. It's called The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. 
Alan Dershowitz, whose position on the Trump phenomenon is complicated enough to get him uh, canceled on both sides. How did he accomplish that? We'll talk to uh, Alan Dershowitz, continue the conversation coming right up on the Medved Show. Medved Show, a pleasure speaking always to uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz, his 50th book. He's just about finished with number 51, by the way. Uh, the 50th book is called The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. And he talks about various fights he's gotten into, trouble he's gotten into, how people have not wanted to tolerate different positions he's taken. You'd think there'd be a lot of gratitude for enthusiastic Trump supporters because uh, Professor Dershowitz was a key element in defending President Trump from impeachment. But uh, why is it exactly that uh, some Trump venues have said uh, you're no longer welcome in those precincts anymore? What did you do? Well, first, I voted against Trump twice. And second... <laughs> I'm against uh, impeaching Biden. You know, people forget that my original title of my book, which became The Case Against Impeaching Trump, the original title was The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton. I started to write it when Hillary Clinton looked like she'd be elected, and the Republicans were swearing they would impeach her on day one, the day she got into office. And I started writing a book saying, you can't do that. The Constitution has criteria. And then, you know, something happened on the way to the forum. And Trump got elected, and I changed the title of the book. In fact, the publisher even created a mock cover that I still have, the case against impeaching Hillary Clinton. So, you know, I'm not a partisan. I just care about the Constitution, due process, and free speech, which means I have no friends. The people on the left hate me. They think I abandoned them. The people on the right were disappointed in me because I didn't take it all the way and want to impeach Biden. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I have a loving family, but not a lot of friends left. Okay. By the way, uh, on your position against impeaching Biden, you also opposed to the idea of, uh, which is increasingly talked about on conservative circles, of the 25th Amendment? I am at the moment. Um, right now, uh, I don't see the argument. Um, you know, I've known Joe Biden for is it now 1980 so it's now 40 42 years he hasn't changed that much he's a little <laughs> bit slower but uh you know he, he was never the most articulate guy in the world and i think the 25th amendment really has to be saved for extraordinary circumstances and of course the framers of the 25th amendment understood that because they put the power in the hands of people that the president appointed his own cabinet and if right. his own cabinet doesn't find that he is unable to perform his duties, it's almost impossible to invoke the 25th Amendment. So it's not going to happen. But I'm also against targeting Biden's son. I don't know what the facts are. And if the facts really do prove, you know, commission of terrible crimes of fraud, that's one thing. But what I don't like is 
the Stalin-esque way of some people saying, show me the man and I'll find you the crime. Yesterday's New York Times had two op-eds by distinguished people uh, urging that President Trump be prosecuted without regard, basically, to the facts of the law. My colleague, Larry Tribe, actually has advocated prosecuting Trump for attempting to murder Pence. I mean, you know, the guy would have flunked first-year criminal law if he said that. I mean, doesn't he know anything about the law of attempts, how difficult it is to prove that particular crime? But it doesn't matter to the tribes of the world. Just get Trump, no matter what it takes. The Constitution be damned. Trash the Bill of Rights. Just get Trump. That's okay. what is going on. You say it uh, for the tribes of this world. It is appropriate phrase, not just because of Lawrence <laughs> Tribe, a distinguished law professor at Harvard, but because we are so tribal now in our life. Uh, what about your first chapter, which I found astonishing and, and gut-churning, actually, was how you were initially canceled by Jewish institutions, and this has to do with your book, Chutzpah, and your entire approach as one of the most prominent and effective defenders of Israel. Explain how this happened. Yeah. Well, first, let me, let me tell you, I was a young lawyer, right, right uh, in practice, and a guy named John Lucido calls me and says, I'm an Italian-American, and Cravath, Swain, and Moore won't promote me to partner because they don't want any ethnic Catholics. And I said, I'll take your case, pro bono, because I was turned down by Cravath and all of those WASPy firms when I applied uh, for a job, even though I was first in my class and editor-in-chief of the journal. And what do you think the first call I got was? From the leaders of the Jewish community saying, stay away, don't bring the case, don't defend John Lucido, because we're making progress now. They're not discriminating against us anymore, so don't rock the boat. And I basically, after a few well-chosen curse words, said, look, for me, discrimination against anybody is discrimination against everybody. So that was my first uh, encounter with uh, Jewish uh, cancellation. And then after chutzpah, I was attacked by the American Jewish Congress. You know, shh, don't rock the boat. Don't make noise. We're here as guests in other people's country. You're second-class citizens. You don't want to be third-class citizens. I've fought against that all my life, and I'm going to continue to fight against it as long as the good Lord gives me the power, the energy, and the intellect to do so. Uh, what, what about the uh, current situation and, and your last chapter in the book? The book, which is fascinating, is called The Price of Principle. How do we make it better? How do we put principle over partisanship, which is what the book is about, that dichotomy? Go ahead. Right. We have to move to the middle. We have to, both sides, have to marginalize the extremists on each side. For example, today on my podcast, I'm going to talk about prayer and propaganda in schools. The right wing wants prayer in the schools. The left wing wants propaganda in the schools. I want mathematics in the schools. And I think most parents don't want to hear from the right and the left. They don't want the extremists. We're a centrist country. We were the only country in the Western world to survive the dichotomy between Nazism and uh, communism in the 1930s uh, because we had Roosevelt. He brought us together. And I'm not telling you that Roosevelt was the answer, but we have to move to the center. We have to start 
building bridges and compromising and talking to each other. It's not going to be easy to do. My personal hope is I hope that Trump doesn't run next time around. The reason I voted for Biden is not because I thought he was going to be a great president, but I thought he would might be able to heal divisions, and I'm disappointed. Do you see anyone uh, in, in prospect who might be able to heal divisions better than Biden or Trump? Yeah, I think there are people. I think that uh, um, there, are, there are a couple of moderate senators on both sides that could do it. The only regret I ever had in the vote is voting for Barack Obama the second time. I've never voted for a Republican. I wish I had voted for Mitt Romney. I think he has emerged as one of those people who can help bring people together. He's a, a deep-seated conservative, but he's a man of principle. And anyone on the Democratic side? Yeah, I think there are a few. Um, you're, you're not a big the, fan of uh, Kamala Harris, I take it. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, and, I, you know, there are some Democrats I wouldn't vote for. I wouldn't vote for Sanders. I wouldn't vote for my former colleague, Liz Warren, who I sat next to and had lunch, you know, three days a week uh, for 25 years. I wouldn't vote for her. I wouldn't vote for any any extremists. And, um, you know, the, the, the senator from Minnesota— uh, I could I could vote for any uh, club. You know, sure. Yeah, I wish I, re I really wish that uh, that uh, Andrew Cuomo had uh, survived, basically, and he would have been, <laughs> I think, a decent candidate. But that's forever. And I don't know about Newsom. I don't know enough about that. But these are people who I would prefer. Uh, you know, I had dinner right after he got elected with DeSantis. And his wife, just me, my wife, the DeSantis's, and another couple. I liked him a lot. And then I think he moved a little bit too far for me on the uh, uh, COVID and on uh, gay rights. Um, but, you know, he, I think he would move, if he got the nomination, I think he would move to the center. I think he'll move to the right to get the nomination. But he would move to the center if he got it, I think. I'm not sure. Look, I'm not a political analyst. You know, there are so many people who are so much better at that than me. But I hope I can vote for somebody on principle. That okay, you you say in the book, and, and let's conclude with this, the three principles that are most important to you. Go. Yeah, yeah, of course, free speech, due process, and true equality. I mean, real equality, not equity, but meritocracy. Those are my three. And, and, and real equality, meaning not equality of result, but equality of opportunity. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, always bracing, invigorating, and as my uh, grandfather would say, so Leben bis 120. You should live to 120 and keep turning out the books. I know you will for the uh, benefit of this greatest nation on God's green earth.